It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald, and this is The Hangover a limited-run podcast from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to steal the election, and the siege of the U.S. Capitol? And what comes next? No individual, probably other than Barack Obama himself, played a bigger role in creating the Republican wave of 2010 than former Virginia Congressman Eric Cantor. And no event better foretold the coming Republican crack-up than Cantor's stunning primary loss four years later. Along with Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy, Cantor spearheaded an effort to recruit younger, more conservative candidates and raise huge sums to support their efforts. Their bet paid off when Republicans delivered the worst midterm shellacking to Obama of any president since 1938. The win vaulted Cantor into the position of House Majority Leader, from which he had to try to keep a fractious freshman class of 63 new members together and negotiate with the Obama administration on a series of brutal battles over taxes, debt, and spending. That tension helped lead to Cantor's primary loss to a political novice riding a populist wave of resentment against the GOP establishment. Sound familiar? Welcome, Eric Kanner. Thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we'll see if that holds. Uh, the the uh, first question for you is, were you raised a Republican? I was always raised a Republican. Um, I'm a native of Richmond, Virginia, and um, my father um, got involved um, very early on when I was young in the Republican Party through a, a man named Dick Obenchain, who um, really rose to uh, to power in the Virginia Republican Party almost as a modern day Barry Goldwater for Virginia, and uh, he he uh, and my father both practiced law in Richmond, which was a fairly small legal community at the time. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, after Dick Obenchain um, uh, achieved the nomination to run for the U.S. Senate as a Republican in 1978. I think about a month or so after the nomination, uh, he was killed in a plane crash. And that is um, sort of the beginning of sort of my family's involvement uh, in the conservative movement and the Republican Party of Virginia. Now, when you were growing up in Richmond, growing up in Virginia, Virginia was still a Democratic state predominantly. Uh, Richmond was sure a Democratic city. Um, Talk a little bit about the evolution, uh, because I think Virginia's experience uh, sort of parallels uh, that of the, the the shift in the Republican Party. Talk a little bit about that. So it's interesting. Again, when when I was in, uh, you know, not a voting age yet, um, it was uh, sort of a, around 1980, and the uh, state itself uh, uh, was still a predominantly Democratic state with a Democratic machine uh, that really um, survived off the support of. Um, the 
uh, uh, sort of old line Democrats and a Harry much Bird. of it, Harry Byrd and the Byrd machine, and much of it, unfortunately, uh, was uh, associated with the massive resistance movement and a lot of the racist sort of undertones, unfortunately, the state um, has throughout its history. Uh, but quickly, the state was trying to uh, modernize and obviously with a population boom uh, that began to build in the early uh, 80s, the state began suburbanizing uh, in the three large metropolitan areas. Uh, and um, it was during that time that um, uh, my father and um, actually both my parents became very involved in local county Republican politics, um, beginning to enjoy sort of the tailwinds that um, the growth in the in the Commonwealth were providing to the party as it became increasingly concerned about the vision that Ronald Reagan was providing, which was a limited government, was um, a, a a wide open free market so that individuals could could build a better life for themselves and their families. Uh, and Virginia was a big beneficiary of sort of the Reagan-esque vision uh, for America. And that's when the Republican Party again began to really um, build its strength. Did you grow up in the district you would go on to represent? I did. I, I actually did. I think later, uh, when I was in, in uh, college, uh, one uh, the first summer after my freshman year, I went home to Richmond and uh, became the driver uh, for the congressman in his first re-election campaign, who uh, at the time, Tom Bliley, was uh, my congressman. So I became his driver, and ironically, ultimately, you know, almost 20 years later, um, I won his seat in Congress. Mm -hmm. And the district, for, for folks to think about, is uh, part of the city of Richmond on, the, on the, that side of the James, north and west, and then out into the suburbs in Henrico County, uh, affluent, uh, expanding, uh, certainly by the time you got there, still expanding. Uh, and then out into Goochland and some more rural parts, exurban and rural parts of the state, right? It was it was largely eighty percent a suburban Richmond seat. Uh, it, it encompassed the two uh, largest suburban counties around Richmond, not all of them, but uh, parts of them, and, and sort of the the growth oriented, upwardly mobile, more professional class suburbs of Chesterfield and Henrico County, and then Hanover County, uh, and then you're correct. Uh, it went up through the uh, foothills of Blue Ridge, uh, skirted Charlottesville, and up into Culpeper. Again, 80 percent suburban, twenty percent exurban and rural. So it would be pretty fair to say, and I was really thinking about this as I was reacquainting myself with your pretty remarkable career. Uh, pretty safe to say that your district, your experience, runs a pretty good parallel to the Republican Party nationally, right? Uh, you were uh, in a state that was realigning. Uh, that's where you grew up in a state that was realigning to the Repu that was aligning to the Republican Party in a district that was indicative of the kinds of places where Republicans, starting in 1994, really before that, but starting in 1994, that Republicans developed this the, a framework that worked, right? A framework that worked to be a national party. Yeah, I, I think absolutely, Chris. And when when, when I was uh, in the state house, and so I got elected, and first sort of threw my hat in the ring when I was 27 years old, uh, and uh, represented a, a district in the state house in the House of Delegates in Virginia. 
that uh, included, um, um, uh, it was included in that congressional district. But again, it was typified by, by um, uh, young families who uh, were very concerned about their children's education, who had good jobs, uh, who wanted to make sure that they could provide uh, for a better future for, for their kids. Uh, and it was the policies of sort of limited government, of low taxes, of, uh, of conservative stewardship, if you will, of government and its role of, of limited reach uh, and allow for the flourishment, if you will, of individual rights and liberties and the ability to, to again, aspire to a better life and actually achieve it. It was, it was uh, the kind of district that became the rock of the Republican Party throughout the rise of Newt Gingrich and uh, into the next decades, decades plus. And I also know that in, in Virginia, especially Richmond, crime was a big driving factor, that Republicans were tough on crime. Uh, when we think about the Allen governorship and all, all of that, that, you know, uh, so you'd say security, prosperity, that was the message. Absolutely. And it was uh, abolished parole was one of George Allen's big platforms when he ran in 1993 and became the se- only the second governor as a Republican in Virginia to run and win since Reconstruction. So while you uh, in in between the time that you were driving uh, a congressman and becoming a congressman, uh, you got uh, a top notch education. You did all kind of stuff when you what year did you run for Congress? I ran for Congress in 2000. So it was the Bush Gore election, which uh, uh, in which I ran for Congress. And interestingly, um, given the way my career uh, sort of uh, path. Uh, unfolded, um, my entry into the congressional race went through a very tough primary in which um, we knew it was going to be tough. And I won that congressional district primary to run as the Republican candidate with 263 votes. Uh, And so it was a very, very close election. Uh, But ironically, given where my unscheduled departure ended up (laughs) through a primary. Right. So what in, so 14 years before you got primaried, what did you do to win your primary? How did you, how did you pull off that victory? Well, I mean, we always had the uh, vision, and I still hold this vision for the Republican Party, that we want to add more people to uh, the, the uh, armies and the champions of, of, uh, of liberty and free markets. I mean, we in limited government. So we, we took that attitude. We said, we're going to win this because... Um, yes, uh, I had been uh, in uh, public office at the state level, but as Ed had my opponent, my opponent was a state senator from a county in the congressional district, Chesterfield County. Uh, we went into this with our polling indicating that he actually had more support than I did, uh, more name ID because he was a senator. I was only a delegate. Uh, and so we fought hard to go out and reach out to um, uh, people all throughout the district to get them involved. Uh, and uh, you know, encourage them to come out, uh, come out for uh, for the primary election. And so it was always this vision of uh, including more people in this uh, in this goal that we had for a better, safer, more prosperous future for the families of Virginia. So, I, I listeners may not understand how rapid your rise was once you got to Congress, uh, but uh, like a duck to water. Uh, and I suppose you had been rehearsing for the part in the house in Virginia, in, in Richmond, and you had all that stuff. 
but it's hard. I think it would be hard for people to understand to go to get elected in 2000 and to be the minority. Le- you were the minority leader by what? 2008. Is that right? So I was, I, I became the whip in 2008. So we became the whip and then the leader in 2010. But uh, Chris, I always say better lucky than good. You know, you just oh. sort of try and try and get yourself uh, as um, involved in things as you possibly can and hope that uh, luck comes your way. So you, uh, 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 shucksing aside, you and a crew uh, that included uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy uh, brought an energy into a Republican conference that was, I don't want to say rudderless, but that there was a, uh, there was a vacuum and you guys described yourselves as the young guns and you came through and talk a little bit about in 2010, I remember having to forecast that election. And I remember that when I did the math every way I could, and it kept coming up that the Republicans were going to gain between 63 and 65 seats in the House. I thought, that can't, be, that, can, <laughs> that, can, that can't be right. Uh, that cannot be right. Um, and in fact, it was. Uh, and in fact, what was it, 64, I think you got? Yeah, I think so. 64, the majority maker. And not just a majority, but the biggest Republican majority in the House since Nicholas Longworth and Calvin Coolidge were hanging out in Washington in the 1920s, right? Right. It was, it was a stunning night. So tell me, to get there, though, for all that you did and your crew did, uh, it had to be, uh, most of the credit has to go to Barack Obama, right? Uh, because uh, that 2010 election was, uh, the, it was called the Tea Party Wave, but it was definitely a backlash uh, from a lot of places, a lot of districts that had voted for Obama or in which Obama had been competitive. And boy, the tide ran out on him. How did, and you were part of the very famous moment where Obama was talking about the stimulus and his, the famous quote, because I won, he told you. Uh, that's why your idea can't be on the table here because he had won the election. Talk about how the events of 2009, the rise of the Tea Party, how did that shape your strategy and how did that shape the contours for the 2010 election? Well, you know, I, mean, I think, you know, you, you're so correct, Chris, that that statement that Obama, President Obama made to me, um, we were in the Roosevelt Room in the White House when we were trying to um, at least negotiate um, a position for our party and our ideas in the stimulus program that he was undertaking very early on. And it was right there when we were discussing tax policy. And he said to me, Eric, elections, elections have consequences, and I won. So we're going to do it my way. And it really did set the tone for us over the next two years, because I've always believed, and I believe now just as I believed then, I believe for our party now especially, we need an offense. We need a conservative alternative if all we're faced with is a one-way street in, in a town that's uh, dominated by the Democrats. And that's what was going on back then. And we did proffer. And John Boehner and I went over to the White House and we proffered, you know, a list of things that we felt that we could get some support from the Republicans with um, in the situation we found ourselves in because President Obama had 70 some percent approval rating, a historic election uh, back in 2008. Uh, But unfortunately, there was no receptivity to trying to work with us. 
and they basically decided that they were going to run the tables on the um, policy front, and they passed uh, the stimulus. It was almost a $900 trillion, $800-some trillion stimulus bill, a billion-dollar stimulus bill at the time. Uh, they went and did the ACA, the Obamacare bill. They went and did Dodd-Frank uh, with uh, little to no bipartisan support, uh, certainly not in the House. Uh, and uh, I think what the country saw is increasingly um, a Democratic majority, supermajorities in Washington led by President Obama that really weren't answering sort of the calls for uh, the everyday working families across the country. And especially when it came to something like health care, um, they just found that it was too threatening, uh, that this one-way policy street was way too much uh, for the average working family to, to bear. Uh, and people who'd never been involved in politics before came to the fore, uh, as you indicated, and, and became what was then later known that, as the Tea Party. Uh, people forget what that acronym meant. It was taxed enough already. It was this notion that somehow or another government became so big and it was like disconnected to the experience of the uh, average working family. Uh, so those were the wins that we had at our back uh, at that point in that election. There's no question that, you know, although we would love to think that we had a mandate uh, by the voters, uh, no question in my mind looking back that it was a response to the overreach by the Obama administration and the Democrats. Uh, Nancy Pelosi then, as it is now, and uh, then it was Harry Reid in the Senate. Uh, and um, um, it was uh, the response to say, hey, we want to check and a balance. We want a party to get in the way of the steamrolling that's going on uh, with the legislature and the, and the presidency in Washington. One of the things that you did for 2010 was you stole a page out of the Rahm Emanuel playbook. You found members, you found candidates that were right for their districts, even if they weren't right for every Republican district, right? Uh, your success in the Northeast, your success in the upper Midwest, the seats that you flipped that hadn't been Republican, you know, since Nixon, uh, these talk a little bit about candidate recruitment and how you guys thought about building your coalition and building the party. Well, we, we wanted, we wanted to see sort of the next generation of conservatives to come, uh, join us in the fight, uh, to reclaim, um, you know, our majority in Washington so we could further sort of the, the conservative vision that we had. Uh, and, and you're right, Chris, uh, we always said the, the uh, Northeast Republican running in upstate New York is a lot different uh, than a Republican recruit in uh, Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and we had to recognize that, that yes, there were some common uh, themes in terms of being a conservative, but certainly they, we have a very diverse country uh, and it should be always in the in the forefront of one's uh, mind in terms of looking for candidates. Elections are won and lost at home, not in Washington. Uh, again, which begs for the diversity factor that you uh, hint at in your question. Uh, so we went through a pretty rigorous process of recruitment, uh, and we we required sort of a robust campaign operation and a real serious commitment on the part of these candidates uh, to demonstrate that they can win. Uh, and if they met those goals, and you mentioned Young Guns, it, it was actually Fred Barnes who gave us uh, that name. We didn't Fred that Barnes gets that. Does he get a royalty on that? Did he get <laughs> yeah, a piece of the book? Should. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have made out with much. I tell you that. It went it's straight fair. to paperback. Fair. Uh, fair, fair. So, but um, but but I do think that 
because of the rigor that we um, overlaid on this process, um, that to this day, I know that the Republicans' uh, recruitment effort does have this sort of appellation of young guns uh, to try and stand for sort of a, a mark of achievement that those looking to get behind some winning and potentially winning candidates um, is, is connoted with that with that name. But Obama had something going for him, which was that Republicans were starting to go a little crazy. Uh, this was when we have uh, birth certificate mania, uh, that Obama is a stealth Muslim from Kenya, show us the long form. That's when we meet Donald Trump uh, in his new political iteration in 2011, that he is holding birth certificate rallies and all of that stuff. Um, the rise of, I don't think it's fair to say the rise, the facilitation of conspiratorial thinking and cranky kind of thinking uh, was certainly facilitated by the explosion in social media and the ability for people to connect. When you look back on how that, let's just take the birther thing specifically. When you look back on how Boehner handled it, how you handled it, do you wish that you had done it differently? Did you handle it the best that you could? Was that a, was, did you look at that as a watershed at the time or not? I, I think, well, the answer to the last question is no, we did not look at it as a watershed. We, we really saw that whole issue as really just a clown show, that it was ridiculous. And I, I remember specifically, anytime I was asked the question, I stopped to look the reporter in the eye to debunk that theory and say that's ridiculous. Uh, that's not something that I would adhere to at all. I know that John Boehner did at the time as well. So I, I don't think we... I mean, there was no question which side we came down on on that, but I don't think maybe we realized um, the 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 currency that such a, uh, a a a a myth or a lie could have and gain. And I think you're right. I mean, it was we we were beginning to the hyperbole that began to take hold across platforms and social media, uh, cable news, and the rest. Is very damaging to our cause because I, I think ultimately what that does is it raises these false levels of expectation on the part of the voters, uh, and it's very addicting to go in and get your adrenaline going on social media and get outraged. Um, and and again, that that kind of thing be, became the incentive, um, and it just snowballed from there. So I do think you're right that Barack Obama was able to take advantage of of us. Uh, as as a party, as we started ahead down that route, you, I was so eager to talk to you about this because the piece that you wrote in the Washington Post earlier this year, really, I think, struck on the magic moment, and the magic moment was Obama gets reelected in 2012, um, and the backlash, the outrage among Republicans over this person who a not insignificant number of voters believed was an illegitimate president uh, and the pernicious uh, effects of Obamacare uh, received as a life or death question for the country, for a lot of people. And we get to 2013 and we get to what I call the Ted Cruz shutdown, but it was the defund Obamacare shutdown. So walk us through that. It's 2013. Uh, you're the uh, majority leader and you find yourself, there is for the first time in my experience, a United States Senator whipping votes in the house. Ted Cruz is whipping votes in the house against what you're recommending. 
So I think also for context here, we should point out this came after three years of fiscal cliff exhaustion, right? Everything, Obama and your team, Boehner and your team, every time there was a, you know, if, if it was a group of people trying to decide where to go to dinner, everybody always ended up hungry on the street eating a hot dog because no one could come to any, uh, there, was, there was never the kind of agreement. When did we get the uh, budget sequestration? When was that well, awful? See, that, and that, that's, a, that's a good question because honestly, there was some behind the scenes consensus building that ended up manifesting itself for the next five years, but it was never heralded as that because it wasn't in the interest of either side. And what I'm referring to is the Biden commission. Uh, and oh, right. this, was, this was right after the, um, uh, President Obama uh, had this big sort of showing of the um, Simpson-Bowles commission and he went and castigated the Republican members that served on that committee. And, you know, he took this sort of holier-than-thou, self-righteous view of all the good that he does, and the Republicans didn't stand for anything. But in the meantime, he said he was going to appoint Joe Biden um, uh, to head up a commission to deal with these recalcitrants in the House. Again, this was back in 2011. And what happened is Boehner said to me, look, Eric, you go and deal with Biden and see if you can find, you know, any points of agreement. And this, as you recall, was the lead up to back in August of uh, 2011, the first time that you had the sort of uh, clash, if you will, of the new Tea Party that was elected in 2010 uh, with the so-called debt ceiling uh, debacle. Uh, and recall that, you know, when we um, took that historic majority in the 2010 election, we changed the rules and we said, hey, we don't want to just keep putting the... Uh, uh, the, the increase of the debt on autopilot in Washington, we want to make sure there's a separate vote so that maybe we could starve the beast of the growth of the federal government. Which the, debt, in, the debt in those days was? It was 14, 12 billion. Yeah, I was, I I was going to say six, six, 16 maybe trillion. Maybe not even, right. Yeah, yeah so. 14, so it has approximately doubled since yes, that. Yes, correct. So, um, so what happened was um, we, we, Biden and I sat down and we had members from the Senate that were there in the House. But ultimately, you know, we for like seven or eight weeks met three, uh, three times a week, a couple hours each day. He and I would spend time together on the phone in person trying to come to an agreement because at, at that point, uh, then Speaker John, John Boehner had said, look, let's go dollar for dollar. If you're going to increase the debt ceiling, we've got to go find commensurate savings in order to do that. Well, in fact, Joe Biden and I, we really did come up with about a trillion two or so uh, in savings, uh, but it was not enough to achieve the one debt ceiling increase that President Obama was looking for uh, in order to avoid another one of these fights prior to his 2012 midterm election, re-election campaign. So in the end, what happened, though, is that um, those sort of savings ended up providing the fuel for the budget agreement, whether it was Ryan Murray or whether it was then the Boehner sort of two-year caps later on, um, that, that paid for, if you will, a lot of the savings so, or, or provided a lot of the savings. So I just say that, that there was some ability to see the other side and, and never was it allowed to come out because, right. God forbid, you, you should be agreeing with the Democrats, even back then. But yeah, you know, oh, your yeah. point about your point about Ted Cruz. I mean, it was it was a pretty amazing uh, and I think irrational sort of move, but it caught a lot of political momentum. Well, 
it's uh, well the first the first thing is just the 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 precondition people had grown accustomed to cliff diving right fiscal cliffs had become part of our shared experience here in Washington that oh and obama's not going to budge because as you say certainly in public no one could be seen as saying you know let's just not shut down the government and let's just move on so this brinksmanship that this atmosphere of brinksmanship was in the air between 2010 and 2013 certainly um, even if you behind the scenes were, uh, effectuating, uh, reforms. So for Ted Cruz, let, we should, we should, we should explain what was going on. So Jim DeMint had left the Senate and had gone to the Heritage Foundation, which had been a conservative think tank, which DeMint was brought in to turn into a political action group to pressure members of Congress. Uh, Ted Cruz had been elected in 2012 and was the doyen of Dement and this effort. Um, you wrote about it in your piece, but it rings very true to my experience, which is the populist cry is always, they could give us what we want, but they won't do it. Eric Kanner could give us what we want. We could repeal Obamacare. We could undo everything. But the establishment, the elites, they will not let us have the good thing because they're all in it together. And talk about what it felt like. I mean, you had been, you had moved up through as chief deputy whip to the whip to the majority leader, just all of this stuff. Talk about the change that happened inside your conference in that time. You know, it was just think of the preposterous notion that was being peddled at the time. It's just it's still looking back at it, it's just extraordinary to me. Uh, even with what we've got going on today, which is that on steroids. Uh, but it's it's you know we had a a house that was held by um, Republicans, a Senate held by Democrats, Harry Reid, the leader, and a Democratic president in the White House, President Obama. How in the world are you going to affect uh, a repeal of the ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare, in that sort of political setup? There, there and was Obama just, had, we should point out, vowed absolutely that he would veto anything that did anything like that. I mean, it's just preposterous. But as you say, very effective campaign political ploy to say, all you have to do is fight hard enough and you can get what you want. And that you could beat Obama into submission. Again, preposterous notion, but a lot of currency politically, because that tells the populist outcry, those who are engaged in that, what they want to hear. That, you know, it's all of those people in Washington. So it's this sort of false expectation um, and narrative that was set up by somebody like Ted Cruz um, that added to sort of the outrage uh, that began really building back in those days. Did you sense that your members, your fellow Republicans, were, were they in agreement so much or were with Cruz, or was it that they were concerned about getting primaried or what the repercussions would be for them if they didn't go with the shutdown? Much easier for them. And I think by and large, most would say this is crazy, of course, but you don't know how bad it is when I go home and people don't understand we're not fighting. And so it's much easier at the time for those most members to go home and say, yeah, it's I, I voted with you. But it was those leaders in Washington. They went ahead and struck a deal with uh, to to allow Obamacare to go forward. 
again, remember this notion that somehow you're going to repeal it um, was not going to happen. If you shut down the government, which is what all this was about, um, that somehow or another you could for, uh, preclude Obamacare from taking effect, which again, if you understand what was going on, the statute was a statute. There was an entitlement created. There was a class of people entitled to the benefit, and that was it. So again, there's no sort of connection with reality whatsoever. It was just those leaders in Washington aren't fighting hard enough. Ted Cruz says those leaders in the House, they, they aren't fighting for you. They, I am. And again, mm-hmm. and towards what is, is the real question. But again, it's just who can be more outrageous and, and lob these sort of uh, insane expectations uh, that will never, ever come to fruition. But again, as long as you're fighting, you're winning. So a senator gets the House, essentially, to jump off a cliff and go into shutdown. And then the, the ping pong ball goes over to the Senate. And this is where we get Ted Cruz and Green Eggs and Ham. Uh, this is where we get the quasi-filibuster as he's trying to do this. What were you thinking during this? This was a couple-week period here. What were you thinking about the future? What were you thinking about what was going on, how this was going to resolve itself? First of all, we knew going into a shutdowns never work. I mean, it's it's like upon what basis are you going to come out of that shutdown in a politically improved way? I mean, you're just not. Uh, because there was nothing that was going to be changed in this goal towards repealing Obamacare through this. But we'd been telling people all along, we're going to repeal it, we're going to repeal it, we're going to repeal it. Again, that was part of looking back. That was the temptation that we all um, were engaged in as well. Man, we had these wins behind us. Let's keep going. Let's keep fighting. But what we, what we failed to, I guess, realize was our words mattered, right? And these, these words and these expectations that you set up matter. Uh, and I don't care if you vote 56 times, which is the number that we voted and the times that as a leader, I helped bring the bill to the floor to try and repeal it. It's not going to happen when you have Barack Obama in the White House. Uh, so I was thinking, well, how are we going to get out of this? And then what happened was, of course, we had a debt ceiling crisis that was laid on top of that. And, and no one in their right mind, I think, would undertake the risk uh, of, of going into default because you've never been there before. You don't know the impact on what your constituents would wake up to the next morning in terms of their 401ks or, uh, or their IRAs and what happens to their portfolios and the economy. I mean, I just don't think that that is a risk that any sort of rational risk taker would say is, is a good thing to do. But again, that's what caused us to reopen because there were a few of us who I think provided sort of uh, um, the, the rational sort of uh, outlook to say, hey, not a good thing. Let's get this country open. Let's start running again. I want to jump out of our timeline just for one quick second to say, when you saw the Obamacare replacement catastrophe for Republicans after they uh, that Speaker Ryan, then Speaker Paul Ryan uh, and McConnell couldn't come up with, they wanted to repeal and replace Obamacare. They couldn't quite come up with it. They came up with, I called it the wimpy burger version, which was we will gladly replace your, we will gladly repeal and re- replace your health insurance program on Tuesday for a tax cut today. Uh, John McCain with the famous thumbs down. Why didn't Republicans, and I, I know that it, it is unfairly said of Republicans that they didn't come up with a plan. Why didn't Republicans settle on a plan? Why didn't, Repu- for all of the political advantage 
that Obamacare had brought Republicans. Why didn't Republicans come up with the plan? You know, it was, uh, it was sort of, we, th- this goes back to the fact that we fought hard to, and, and I said before, Chris, that we always felt like the best way to counter sort of the onslaught of a progressive sort of legislative agenda undertaken by Obama and his team was to have a conservative alternative. We couldn't even get an alternative, a conservative alternative agreed upon when we weren't in power, when we didn't have the ability uh, to pass something. And again, it was almost as if we were playing on their playing field. You know, you were never going to compete with them in terms of lives insurance covered uh, because they, they were much more um, about coverage. We were about access to, to care. And we were never great at sort of formulating our view and going out there and fighting for it. So we were unable to even gather consensus then. So when you ask why, I just think politically really, really tough to be in that position. And there weren't enough people to sort of take some principled stands uh, and to insist that this is the route we have to go. So again, it's very, uh, you know, there was a long history there. It wasn't just sort of those two years or year in which there was an opportunity to repeal and replace. I mean, there had just been a long history of the inability for the party uh, to come up with an offensive health care platform. The, you, you referenced earlier about the perverse incentives of a duopoly and how it wasn't in, in either Obama's or the Democrats or uh, you and Boehner's interest to be seen in agreement, right? That, that there are political consequences to be seeing in cooperation. Um, the perverse incentive stuff here, uh, how much did that play a role, do you think, on that issue uh, of health insurance, on immigration, on all these other things? Because one of the frustrations I think a lot of us have is there's 70% of Americans who fundamentally agree on a bunch of issues. You can get to 70% on immigration. You can get to 70% even on uh, banning late-term abortions. There's a lot of consensus area that goes unexploited. Is that because of those perverse incentives? But but Yes. And and you think about it, Chris, when has there been any progress made um, in terms of policy development on the conservative side in terms of offense on any of those issues, healthcare, immigration, um, you know, you can name the list of them. Unfortunately, I think an intellectual laziness has 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 taken hold uh, upon our party, and that unfortunately, um, we have decided that it is about the fight, uh, and we can't be seen uh, to come to some consensus and to move any policy forward if it requires working with the other side, because what's paramount right now is the fight. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, um, because everything's got to be a fight, uh, we are losing sight of the important fights that we should be about in terms of beating back. I mean, you look at what's going on today and sort of some of the union bills, the PRO Act that's on the uh, floor of the Congress of the House this week. I mean, it's, um, that's probably the biggest labor uh, transformation in terms of policy this country has seen in, in a long, long time. That should be, if we're about trying to make sure there's a level playing field for small business and large, um, um, we should be probably garnering our forces to go and focus on that. But instead, we're too busy fighting about Dr. Seuss. Uh, so it's, 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 really, it's really a problem now that, you know, unfortunately, it's the grievance and it's the fight that's been paramount, not the sort of policy goals we should be about. 
Well, I always thought the Lorax was a little suspect personally, <laughs> just a little, you know, I don't know. Um, all right. So it's a, it's a lovely warm evening in 2014. I am grilling meat as is my tendency. I had told everyone I was at Fox News and I had told everyone, ah, you know, the, we got some stuff today. It's Virginia. There's nothing is going to happen. Don't worry about it. And my phone starts exploding. And it says, I need to get into the bureau because Eric Canner is going to lose his primary. Walk us, and we don't need to dwell in this place, but walk us through your expectation going into the primary uh, and the outcome. Well, you, listen, we, we really, we knew that there was incoming fire because, uh, you know, I was um, the, uh, I was a leader. I was Washington personified, if you will, because I, being the leader, definitionally, you're the problem. So we knew that there was sort of this, um, you know, populist sort of sentiment that we've talked about already that was gaining some traction. But we also felt like the district was, you know, sort of even keeled and, and, and fiscally conservative um, in nature that certainly I had been demonstrating, um, you know, the kinds of things that would appeal to that type of voter. And we should also point out that once upon a time in American politics, people wanted to be represented by leaders in Congress. It was deemed it was deemed good because it was it was believed that having an influential representative or senator would mean good things for your district. Uh, and then that was turned on its head, where it ceased to be good to, uh, from a political perspective to be seen as influential. Uh, certainly in my race, it was that. And, and being part of the establishment was certainly a, a detriment in that primary race. And what ended up happening, honestly, was, you know, we underestimated the um, uh, motivation on the part of the other side, the Democrats, to involve themselves in the primary. Some of the exit polls that were that were taken um, uh, showed that about a third of the primary electorate that day came from Democratic primary voters who didn't have a primary that day because they had mm-hmm. selected their candidate through another process, which state of law allows in Virginia. And they came in to sort of sabotage our primary, which we wouldn't have ever believed that to be the case. Certainly uh, not certainly, in those numbers. Certainly, no. And certainly we, we suffered erosion in terms of Republican support because I had supported TARP. I had been accused of reopening the government and supporting the uh, perpetuation of Obamacare, et cetera. Um, and on immigration, especially, I mean, I had been uh, for doing something about the kids and, and the dreamers. And all of that combined allowed us and forced some erosion, but we still won the Republicans uh, majority, what we didn't take into consideration was it really turned into almost like a special election, not a primary, again, because of the laws in Virginia and the allowance of uh, Democrats to come into a primary like that. So it, it was a shock. As it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it was somebody of your track record of, of um, <laughs> expertise in the area of predictions that even you were shocked. Um, it, we, we were definitely set aback and said, couldn't believe it. But again, things happen. And, and I do think, I always say now, it's sort of, we were the tip of the spear of a lot of what I believe we're seeing today in terms of the populism, a populism overtaking the party. And so you go for, and I, I think people need to just marinate on this for a second, which is you go from leading the young gun insurgency and uh, go from minority leader to majority leader just four years prior to this moment, 
right? That would, it's, it's not just because I wanted to stay and cook steaks. It was because who, how could this, it's four years, right? It, you don't go from there to there in four years. Um, and I think it's, I, I don't know whether you would uh, agree with this or not. Uh, certainly the trends that would play out inside the Republican party in the next two, four, eight, 10 years were all present there with one relative difference. Um, Dave Bratt was a professor, an economics professor at uh, Randolph-Macon College, uh, boo. I went to Hamden, Sydney, so boo. Uh, but the th- this was a pretty thoughtful kind of guy, right? He, was, he, he, he may have had a bunch of simple answers, but he was an educated person. He wasn't selling a bunch of crazy conspiracy theories. He just had a simplistic, uh, he had a simplistic approach that said, this is really simple, but these elites won't let you have it, right? Uh, it, I could say that was probably a fair assessment of what's going on. I mean, it really wasn't about him. It was about right. going after. It was about going after me. And your prophecies were proven correct uh, four years after that, when he was defeated by a Democrat, and the and the district flipped blue, and Republicans lost it again, uh, even in a quadrennial year. Does your district, does your former district, where I just was recently on a very lovely visit to Richmond, uh, does your district look Republican in the future? Does it look like a swing district in the future? What do sub- what do those kinds of suburban, exurban districts look like going forward? Well, I, I do think, you know, what, when we saw what happened in the 2020 election, I do think that there's some, there's a political realignment continuing in this country. And some say it goes back to the election of Bill Clinton way back in 92, um, and maybe just being finished off by Donald Trump uh, in 2020. Um, and that realignment has seen these more educated, suburban, more diverse population moving in uh, and getting turned off by some of the outrage machine uh, that has propelled this sort of activist core in the Republican Party and that was behind President Trump's ascension. Uh, and, and we've got to figure out the suburbs, I'll tell you that. I mean, I still believe strongly that the district, um, again, that I was born in, I raised my uh, family in and still live in, uh, is, a, is a conservative center-right district um, that wants to see um, competency in terms of their elected leaders uh, and is tired of like a lot of the name-calling, the yelling, the, all of that which goes on today. Uh, and until we come up with an agenda that speaks to them, uh, um, we're not going to be able to recapture those kind of districts. Where were you on January 6th? Well, um, I was um, in Virginia uh, on January 6th, uh, and um, I, I saw what was going on and just in disbelief again that, and it was just heartbreaking, really heartbreaking for me. I mean, somebody who um, spent so many years in that building, uh, trying to do what it is I said to my constituents I would do, uh, and the beacon of democracy to the world uh, to see what had happened. Uh, unbelievable. And uh, you wrote about this, but how the if if the Obamacare shutdown was the dry run, right? Uh, for lie for a big lie that you can then. Uh, punish your fellow uh, partisans with, right? Um, how concerned were you in those two months um, 
between the election, the end of the election, and January 6th about what the president was saying. And were you surprised that the huge number of Republicans signed on to the lawsuit to try to overturn the results? Uh, uh, Yes, surprised at all of it. Um, But I I will say this, and they're free to do whatever they want, but I don't believe that our elected leaders should be free to go in uh, and perpetuate a lie once the courts have spoken. I mean, this is this is you know again having gone to law school and 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 uh, a lawyer that never practiced, so I just I tread lightly in saying this. But I either you believe in the court of law or you don't. Either you believe in our system of laws and our constitution or you don't. And so once all of the avenues that President Trump's campaign had the ability to avail themselves of in terms of settling these disputes, once all those attempts were knocked back by the courts. Once the state legislatures um, had certified uh, the Electoral College votes, 50 states, and all did that, and once they forwarded those results to the Congress, there is nothing left in terms of the national legislature, the Congress, to do under our Constitution. So this you know, preposterous notion um, to go in and rile up a cl- crowd and say, you got to fight, you got to fight. And all those who say, well, listen, everybody, Maxine Waters says we got to fight. Yeah, I agree with that. But again, let's be honest. The insinuation was go fight on this particular issue because you can make a difference. That is just a falsehood. That was not true. And so, again, I've always said I I got a real affinity for the truth. And what got me was the ability to see so many people, hey, uh, enjoy sort of the tailwinds of this lie that was being told and ride that wave. And now look what happened. I mean, so again, I just, I feel like, you know, we've got to be honest with the voters. And I said in that piece, you got to speak truth to power. And in a democracy, the power is with the voters. Um, we're, I'm going to let you go here soon, I promise. But how did you, did you, how did you feel for Liz Cheney, who you must have had some real, uh, some real fellow feeling uh, with Liz Cheney, the head of the Republican conference, who voted to impeach uh, and supported the conviction and found herself really with a basket of snakes on her hands. Listen, I, I know that Liz did this with eyes wide open, but I'm sure she felt as if she wanted to be truthful to herself and to those that put her in office. Uh, and again, the the snowballing effect of, of untruths and lies being told to people um, and when you have the president of the United States that is beginning to say, hey, we can actually do something about this, you know, OK, you know, from his standpoint, you know, and again, I think she did what she felt she needed to do in good conscience. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure knows very well the political obstacles that will stand in her way um, as she goes forward, but does it with a clean mind. Would you have been with her? Um, I know that I would, first of all, have been with her in terms of certifying that vote. I mean, to me, what's a more shocking piece was um, the the ability for so many um, to deny the certification. Again, maybe they felt like there was so much fraud that the states didn't properly um, look into it or that the courts in those states ruled improperly. And again, everyone's got a right to push the red or the green button. Um, But 
again, I, I think that we either believe in our system of constitution, our constitutional system, or we don't. Uh, and that's where I, I remain very concerned and I, I share Liz Cheney's concern um, about um, the direction our party heads if we allow for the untruths to uh, sit unanswered. But impeachment was right too much? Was it? You, you know, I, I, again, I, um, I'm i not sure that the impeachment vote, I mean, again, I do think that somehow impeaching an individual that's not in office anymore, I know there's some disagreement among the experts about that, but that to me seems kind of odd. Um, and I do think, as Mitch McConnell said, that there is um, a, a lot of recourse in the, in the courts of law in this country for those who still have claims against a, um, a, um, a non-elected um, office holder at this point, and that's where Donald Trump is. So would it be safe to say you pretty much associate yourself with the Senate minority leader's remarks on this stuff? A, a, a castigation of Trump, but a, a rejection of the concept of post, post-presidential impeachment? I think like so many instances, Mitch McConnell's sort of gotten the balance correct. Yeah. The, it, it, is, uh, it is interesting how <laughs> Republicans who, as recently as 2018, made opposition to Mitch McConnell as Senate leader a litmus test for candidates, for the for the Dave Bratz of the next wave uh, that Steve Bannon and the Trump organization went out hard against McConnell. Uh, and as Trump left office, so much of the things, so much of what they point to as the successes of the Trump term was was not solely because, but substantially because Mitch McConnell was able to deliver two Supreme Court confirmations, the tax cut, all of that stuff. You got it. And, and, and the disconnect between the political appeal of, of outrage and being against somebody like Mitch and the reality of, of the role that Mitch McConnell has played in furthering uh, the policy agenda that we're all about. I mean, th- we were going to have to work as a movement and, and a Republican Party to bring those two together. So if I made you not just majority leader, but czar, if you were, if I, if I gave you unlimited power over American politics and government, what three things would you do to help the Republicans get their act together uh, and truncate what looks like, I was looking over the 2022 Senate map, looks like a potentially uh, rough wilderness patch for Republicans. What would you do if I made you the grand vizier of the world for a day? Look, I, I really think that, you know, when, when um, you know, in my current life now, I, I travel a lot, and, you know, I spend a fair amount of time in Australia, actually, and they have an interesting system of government. You know, they're a representative democracy. I mean, they're not as as extraordinary as we are, as for sure, I have an affinity for that country, but they're, they're not America. But they do have a system where they require people to show up and vote. Uh, and they oh. don't have to vote. You don't have to vote. You just have um, to show up. You just have to show up. You just have to show up. And maybe what that does is it, um, it reduces the level of influence that the extremes have. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with right now is unfortunately. I, I, I'm sorry I made you the grand vizier already. This is already this, because you know who else has compulsory vote? You've you've stumbled into a bugaboo of mine. You know who else has compulsory voting? Brazil and Russia also have compulsory voting. Okay, well, I so I think I make the point that I I, I don't know how to reduce the influence 
of the outrage machine. And and I've seen that that's one way to reduce the influence of the outrage machine. I think that's Dilute, what we Diluting need. extremists in a larger electorate. Right. And so, again, it goes back to when you said, well, how did you approach your election back in 2000 to get to Congress? We looked at a larger pot. How do you expand the pot of electorate? So how do we do that? I, I, I take your, um, your criticism that maybe that's not the way to go, <laughs> but we should be about it. But again, what I see our party doing right now is the, the, the appeal of, um, um, of this sort of restricting access. And I'm not saying we shouldn't make sure there is integrity. So yes, uh, ID if you show up at the polls. Uh, yes, signature verification. Uh, and no to ballot harvesting. But again, there should be, we should be about, you know, more people should be adhering to our arguments. Uh, and again, somehow or another, we've gotten ourselves back on our heels in terms of being for um, the rights for uh, minorities and others to vote. And so we got to figure that out too. Uh, would you would you go for ranked choice voting in primaries? You know, I, um, it's interesting because the state party of Virginia is having this uh, discussion right now as it can't quite figure out the uh, way that it will nominate the gubernatorial candidate that is up for election in this November. Uh, and that is uh, one of the points of contention, that uh, the side who wants sort of to limit the participation, they want, um, they want ranked choice voting as well. Um, you know, and I, I, haven't, I don't have enough experience to see that where that comes out. Um, but um, and whether that's and, and I guess to your point, maybe it's maybe it reduces um, the the impact of those on the extremes. Uh, but I, I don't know what the consequences are of that to say, yes, I would go ahead and support that. See, an answer like that tells me exactly how you became one of the youngest majority leaders in congressional history. That's smooth. That's smooth. That's smooth. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, look, we got to be aware. You do a risk assessment. You don't know what the un, uh, you know, uh, unseen consequences are. You, before you do something, you ought to know. So. Well, Eric Hanner, we know that we are grateful to you for joining us today. This was really great. You're generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Chris, it's a pleasure and good luck to you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.